The excitement in New York City's Times Square on February 12, 1908, cannot be overstated. A crowd of thousands, some sources put the estimate at 250,000 spectators, were crowding the streets, pushed back by 300 police officers, some on foot, some on horseback. An orchestra played boisterous melodies as the crowd waved flags representing the countries of the U.S., France, Italy, and Germany. The smell of gasoline was thick in the air, and crowds pushed forward, straining to lay a hand on one of the six cars about to attempt the greatest and most impossible race the world had ever seen. The goal was to race by automobile from New York City to Paris, France. Was that an impossible task in 1908, when horses were more reliable than cars? Well, yes. Did they do it anyway? Kind of. The plan was to prove the resilience of the automobile and bolster sales at a time when cars were seen as the playthings of the rich, not useful or practical for the average person. The route began in Times Square, then moved north through upstate New York, west through the Midwestern states, all the way to San Francisco, California, then up through Canada. The route veered left into Alaska, where the cars would trudge over dog sled trails before driving over the ice of the frozen Barren Strait to Siberia. Then the route swept through the vast expanse of Asia until the cars finally made it to Europe, where they would finish with grit and glory in Paris. That was the plan, anyway. This was two years before asphalt was invented. There were no highways, much of the trek didn't even offer true roads, and no one had ever driven an automobile the entire way across the formidable 5,000 miles of Siberia. None of these cars had power steering. Driving an automobile in 1908 could be a difficult and physical task. At times, in poor conditions, it took two people to turn the wheel. Oh, and they also didn't have windshields. The teams would follow train tracks, wagon trails, and routes over rivers where they had to build their own bridges. Sometimes there'd be no road at all. Snowstorms, relentless cold, unbearable heat, dust storms, quicksand, mud, canyons, deserts, 200-foot-high snowdrifts, sabotage, rivers, bogs, constant mechanical failures, mountains, unreliable navigation, bandits, at least one kidnapping plot, the nearly impossible-to-resist temptation to quit, and death were all factors in this race. And by the way, there were no gas stations where they could fill up. They had to bring their own gasoline, or hope they could purchase some from a hardware store, pharmacy, or even local blacksmith. At least that was when they were close to civilization, and much of this trip would be through a vast expanse of roadless terrain. The whole winding, zigzagging route over three continents was just under 22,000 miles, or 33,500 kilometers. Of course, nothing went as planned. Just about everything that could go wrong did go wrong. But the adventure that was about to spring from this ridiculous attempt at a half-thought-through idea was going to be the most epic race in history 
most of us have never heard of. Come with me, all the way back to that day in 1908, when the starting pistol signaled the beginning of this legendary race against time and impossibility. Let's go for a drive. I'm your host, Kristen Robine Terpstra, and this is the History Cache. Let's have a look inside. In 1908, 13 cars signed up for the longest race of all time. Seven of them didn't show up. The six that did were a hodgepodge of mismatched crews and six different early models of automobile. So why did anybody think this was a good idea? There were a couple reasons. One, in 1907, there had been a Peking to Paris race, and it had captured the attention of all of Europe that summer. Track races were starting to gain popularity, and as people saw what cars could do with speed, they became curious about what they could do with distance. The span from Peking, now Beijing, to Paris was about 9,300 miles, or just under 15,000 kilometers. A few European countries entered. The French and Dutch had cars, the Italians did too. The Germans did not, and so they were eager to enter a car in the 1908 race. The events of the Peking to Paris race did not bode well for the race of 1908. One of the French teams, driving a Pons model, ran out of gas in the Gobi Desert. Its two-man crew found themselves stranded and dying of thirst until they were rescued and nursed back to health by some desert nomads. It got so hot, the teams had to resort to feeding their drinking water into their radiators to keep their cars running. Eventually, the Italian team won, driving into Paris August 10th, 1907, 61 days after their car had left Peking. It had been a hard, grueling race, disaster and hardship making repeated appearances the whole way. The race of 1908 would be 12,700 miles longer. The headlines featuring the Peking to Paris race sold well. America's New York Times and France Le Matin's papers both agreed to co-sponsor this next sensational event. A story like this could appear in a column every day, and given the frenzy this race would stir, it was just good business. Secondly, the automobile was still a new invention in 1908. Most people in the world hadn't yet seen one, and sales needed boosting. This race would showcase just what the automobile could do, and at best, would prove it was more efficient, faster, and a more reliable mode of transportation than horses. In 1908, cars were seen as the playthings of the rich. According to author Julie M. Fenster, at the time, a new car could cost between $6,000 and $12,000. That's the equivalent of between $50,000 and $300,000 today. You could get cheaper models for as little as $600, but even at that price, cars were still not an attainable luxury for most people in the early 20th century. There was resistance to normalizing cars as a common mode of transportation. 
cars brought change, and not everyone was eager to get behind the wheel and welcome the age of the auto. This race was aiming to change that. As always, I'll put my sources in the show notes, but the main source I used for this series is a book written by Julie M. Fenster called Race of the Century, the heroic true story of the 1908 New York to Paris auto race. This is an excellent book. Not only is it stuffed with diligently researched information, it's actually fun to read. She gets you to hear the roaring crowds and buzzing engines in Times Square that February 12th of 1908. The 12th was not a random date. There were two reasons that day signaled the start of the race. First, it was Abraham Lincoln's birthday. Yes, he'd been dead for 43 years, and the Civil War was just as far behind, but his birthday still felt significant. The American Civil War was closer in time to the people in Times Square that day than the Vietnam War is to us now. Second, the cars had to leave by mid-February if they were going to make it to Alaska in time to catch the Bering Strait ice bridge before it melted. But the race planners had to time it just right. If the cars crossed too early, Siberia would still be frozen when they reached it. Too late, and there'd be no way to drive there. The contestants wouldn't just be racing one another. They'd be racing nature and time. The race was supposed to begin at the sound of a starting pistol, fired by New York's 1908 mayor, George B. McClellan. However, his reputation for being a bit flaky was reinforced that day, because he never showed. As everyone awkwardly waited for the starting pistol to sound, a man named Colgate Hoyt, president of the Automobile Club of America at the time, finally couldn't handle the anticipation anymore, hastily grabbed the gun, and fired it at 11.14. To quote Fenster, The automobile was about to take it all on. Not just Broadway, but the farthest reaches to which it could lead. On that absurdity, the auto was about to come of age. Unquote. Six cars took off at the sound of the starting pistol. The first in line, following its way out of the city, guided by police horses, was France's Césaire Naudin. Gray, like a battleship, this two-seater had a one-cylinder engine capable of 15 horsepower. There was no windshield, no dashboard, no body, even. Just seats surrounded by air. The only sheet metal on the car covered the engine, held down in place by two leather straps. At 3,300 pounds, or 1,500 kilos, it was the lightest car in the race. It was driven by Auguste Pons, a veteran of the Peking to Paris race. Auguste had been one of the contestants rescued in the Gobi Desert. This time, he meant to finish. Another Peking to Paris racer was in the mix. This was Charles Goddard, who had managed to finish that race, but not win in 1907. He was driving another car for France, the Motoblock. The Motoblock company had been organized by Goddard himself with the help of investors. It was a small business. Goddard believed if he could pull off a win, it would mean great things for Motoblock. Since he was using company money to fund the race, he was banking on it. The car itself was much larger than the Césaire. It had four kerosene spotlights on the hood, and unlike some of its competitors, 
a windshield of sorts. It was made of leather, so you couldn't see through it, and it only protected the car's occupants up to their chests. But it was better than nothing. It had the words Motoblock written across it, in case anyone didn't know exactly what they were looking at. Half the entries in this race were French. The final French car was a de Dion, sponsored by the Marquis de Dion, and driven by his nephew, Boursier Saint-Chaffray. In his crew, he had a mechanic, always referred to in the papers as simply Monsieur Autrin, and the Norwegian-born Hendrik Hansen, a man who could speak English, German, French, Chinese, and Russian all fluently, something that would be quite helpful in a race across most of the Northern Hemisphere. Hansen was determined too, promising that, quote, we'll either reach Paris or our bodies will be found by the car. According to Fenster, de Dion at the time was the largest car manufacturer in France. This car, a four-cylinder engine, weighing in at 6,600 pounds, or nearly 3,000 kilos, was the largest car in the race, and it was jam-packed with supplies. They had food rations for a month, a portable kitchen, tools, clothes, and everything they could possibly think of they might need for an Arctic expedition including a sail, which Hansen thought they could use to sail the car through the frozen Siberian tundra. Italy also had an entry. Italy had won the Peking to Paris race and was eager for another victory. This time, the car would be a Brixia Zust, a car known for its reliability and heft. This car makes me think of the old Buick my grandmother drove. It lasted forever and looked like a wide, rectangular boat on wheels. Its crew was sponsored by the Italian newspaper Mattino. It consisted of the 21-year-old Antonio Scarfoglio, one of the youngest entries. He was the son of the newspaper's owner. There was also Emilio Satori, a 26-year-old professional driver who would be behind the wheel, and Henry Haga, a German-born mechanic who joined the team at nearly the last moment. Haga couldn't speak Italian, but he wasn't there for the conversations. He was there to win a race. The Zeust was smaller than the De Dion. It was long, with two seats in front and a bench in back. Shelves were constructed in the rear to help carry extra supplies. The Germans had an entry too, with a young army officer in charge, one determined to prove himself, hoping a win as celebrated as this one would surely be could help catapult his military career. His name was Hans Koppen. He was 31, determined, and willing to do just about anything for a chance to drive in the race. His car was a Protos and was specifically built for this race. Protos was relatively new. It operated out of Berlin and only made cars to order. The company was hoping the race would help boost sales. They were on the fence as to whether they really wanted to enter a car in this race, so the only cost Protos would cover for the German team was the car. Koppen, along with his teammates Ernst Maas and Hans Nape, would have to pay their own way. The German paper Zeitung am Mittig, I am so sorry if you're from Germany and you heard me pronounce that, offered to cover some expenses as long as the team fed the paper stories they had to come up with the equivalent of $50,000 each before the paper would agree to sponsor them. The German team wanted to compete so badly, they agreed to the terms. 
when their driver, Copen, was asked if he was truly ready for a historic, probably ill-fated trip through Siberia, he replied simply, I either make it through, or I'll never be seen again. It's a little surprising that this race included a coast-to-coast -coast drive through the U.S., and we could only come up with one entry. A few different companies were somewhat interested in the idea, but in the end, it was E.R. Thomas, head of the Thomas Motor Company, who threw a car into the ring at the last minute. The car was a Thomas Flyer. The decision to enter the race was so last minute, the Thomas Company didn't even have a car on hand to enter. The Thomas Flyer they sent to compete had originally been built specifically for a customer in Boston, having been built to his specifications and preferences. The company decided to take it and worry about making another one for their customer later. With only days left before the race, there just wasn't time to find another car. The driver for the Americans was Montague Roberts, known as Monty. He was an experienced race car driver and jumped at the chance to test his long-distance skills. However, he would have to be replaced in March, as he had plans to enter the Grand Prix of 1908. Just about everything was last minute with the American team. With only 24 hours to go before the start of the race, the team was still looking for a mechanic. They chose George Schuster, a Thomas mechanic who, with 24 hours left before takeoff, had only moments to decide if he wanted to embark on the world's longest race. He packed his bags right after he got the call. T. Walter Williams, a reporter for the New York Times, was added to the American crew so he could report on the race directly to the paper. With that, six teams in six cars, some more prepared than others, were ready for an adventure. Their only certainty was uncertainty, whether they knew it or not. Their commitment and endurance would be relentlessly tested. All of them wanted to win, but as the road grew difficult, the way winding, lost, and miserable, only a few scrappy, stubborn individuals would prove just how much they wanted it. Fenster wrote, quote, it meant the most to some of those who had never taken a long automobile trip before. Duty-bound, adventurous, vain, or all three at once, they craved the chance to pit themselves against every obstruction, including their own ignorance. Unquote. Thus began the Great Race of 1908. It didn't take long for the road to become merciless. Driving in upstate New York in February amidst snowstorms and ice with no windshield and little cover was a hard way to start a journey. The further north they traveled, the deeper the snow and the more neglected the roads became. According to Fenster, this time of year only well-shod horses pulling sleighs dared brave the ice and snow. It was no place for an early automobile, and roads, especially in the country, weren't often cared for. If someone had to get somewhere, they walked, took a horse, or rode a train. Forty-five miles into the race, Auguste Pons, driving the Césaire, began to fall behind. Unable to see the other cars, he eventually realized the sun was setting on the wrong side, 
a sure sign he had been going the wrong way and now had to backtrack. Getting lost was easy in a time and place where road signs were either few and far between or non-existent. By the time the Caesar was lost, the Zeust was in the lead, trying to push itself as far ahead as possible, refusing to even pause for a lunch break like the other teams. The Italians wanted to go fast and as far as possible, and that meant only stopping when necessary. Copen in the German Protos was of a different mindset. He saw himself as the tortoise amongst five hares. Slow and steady was how he planned on winning this race. By the time the Italian Zeus reached Poughkeepsie around 70 miles into the race, the snow proved it was already more of an issue than they had anticipated. Scarfoglio of the Italian team wrote that, quote, At Poughkeepsie, it was crackling against our tires. At Hudson, it was burying our rims and beginning to cause us trouble. At Albany, it was up to the nave of the wheel. At Schenectady, it was over the radiator. Unquote. The race was big news, and towns were ready and eager to see the automobiles. Some of them arranged for pilot cars or horses to meet the teams as they approached. The pilots would lead the teams through the town and even sometimes miles past. This was important, as it wasn't always clear exactly where the road was. This was especially true as it continued to snow. Quickly, teams were reduced to a crawling pace, with someone having to walk in front of the car with a long stick, prodding the snow in front of them, lest their car drive headfirst into a snowy ditch. Sometimes, when the road was completely lost, teams would find themselves driving over farm fields, taking apart fences to get their cars through. Not everyone was excited about the age of the automobile. There were people who hated the thought of cars becoming a normal mode of transport. According to Fenster, in places where automobiles weren't welcome, residents would leave nails in the roads or even shoot at cars as they drove by. Unbeknownst to them, the crew of the American Thomas Flyer was just meeting such a person. He appeared on the snowy road, his white beard giving him the welcoming appearance of a trustworthy Santa Claus. He told the Flyer there was a shortcut, and they trustingly took it. Turns out it was a cruel joke, not a shortcut, but a rough trail with snow three feet deep. It took the Americans four hours to shovel out their car. Every team spent grueling hours shoveling their cars through upstate New York. Goddard and his French motoblock team had gone airborne that first afternoon, landing in a deep, snowy ditch. The team had to dig until one in the morning before their car was finally free. Growing hungry, they couldn't find any food in their belongings, but they did find some champagne. The bottles were meant to be saved and opened after they victoriously drove into Paris. They drank all of them that first night. Around the time the motoblock was finding a ditch, the Italian team in the Zeust was nearly arrested for spooking a horse. The Italians were angry when the law centered in on them because it very well could have been the Americans or the French de Dion team that had spooked the animal. But those teams had already left and the officer felt he needed to charge somebody. He let the Italians go with a $3 fine. They weren't happy about the injustice of it all, 
but their desire to get going again curtailed their protests. They paid the fine and sped away, leaving the officer in a cloud of Italian expletives. The plan had been to reach Albany that first day, 150 miles into the race. No one made it. On the start of the second day, the Americans, Italians, and one French team were all in Hudson, about 120 miles north of New York City. The French Protos was still way back in Poughkeepsie, and the Motoblock was in Peekskill, having covered even less ground. But Auguste Pons and his team driving the Césaire had had the worst night of anyone. Their engine died on a hill near Peekskill. After venturing into the wintry night on foot, they knocked on the door of the first farmhouse they could find. Unfortunately, they couldn't speak English, and the woman at the door couldn't speak French. Eventually able to figure out what was going on, she took the team in for the night, offering them shelter from the winter cold. And that was about as far as the Césaire would ever get to Paris. Pons had the car fixed a few days later and even drove up the valley a little further, but by the end of the week, the Césaire was officially out of the race. There were now five cars left. Three of them, the Italian Zeust, the French de Dion, and the American Flyer, were closely trailing one another. Day two brought a snowstorm with it. The French de Dion team slid off the road, and Roberts, captain of the American team, ordered his crew to stop and tow their rivals out of the ditch. This show of good sportsmanship was expected, and the different teams generally didn't mind helping one another out when they could, at first. But it wouldn't take long for the competition to get much uglier. Just three days later, the crew of the de Dion would see the Zeus broken down on the side of the road and would speed right past it without so much as a wave. Road conditions were getting worse, and it took two pairs of arms to keep the huge de Dion on the road. When the roads warmed slightly after the teams passed through Albany, the cars had to keep up enough speed to avoid getting stuck in the snow and slush, but not so much that they'd skid off the road entirely. In Schenectady, the road became impassable. The three leaders had to cut across an orchard to continue. To do that, they had to build a bridge out of wood and stones. When that didn't work, the realization they still had the better part of 22,000 miles of obstacles like this began to sink in. Scarfoglio of the Italian team wrote, quote, It is impossible. It is impossible to go any further. Our arms have no power over the spades, and our feet cannot resist the cold which seizes and turns them to ice. The skin of our hands and faces is completely cracked." Copen of the German team shared similar feelings about the trials of upstate New York, saying, Why I expect Siberia will be a picnic compared with what we have experienced. Eventually, the three leaders stranded in the orchard made their way out via a towpath that followed a canal. They had to build another bridge and watch their pilot car fall into a ravine before they were completely free. In the meantime, the trailing Motoblock and Protos were inching their way up the valley. The next day, the roads improved a bit, allowing the cars to drive the country road speed limit of 20 miles per hour. Districts had a speed limit of 10, and populated areas had a speed limit of 15. 
The Zeust and the Thomas Flyer were zooming well past that at a whopping, for the time, 50 miles per hour, or around 80 kilometers per hour. Every time the team stopped in a city or town for the night, it was amidst a frenzy of excited citizens. There were banquets and special dinners planned for the contestants across the entire U.S. Most of the teams were all for it, with the extroverted personalities in the race loving making speeches and toasts as honored guests. But sometimes the excitement of the crowds they'd meet along the way could be dangerous. In Utica, New York, the Italian Zeust was nearly caught in a riot. The huge crowd surrounding the Zeust had followed it inside a local garage, and the team could tell the celebration was about to turn into a panicked frenzy. According to Fenster, just as things were getting sticky, a young attorney in the crowd jumped onto the hood and exclaimed, This way to see the egress! Don't miss seeing the egress! Everyone quickly began filing out to see just what the heck an egress was. The crowd spilled out of the garage to the relief of the Italian team. There was no such thing as an egress. Exclaiming there was was just a crowd control hack the attorney had heard of P.T. Barnum pulling off and decided to give it a try. It worked, and the Italian team left the city with their car still intact. On day three, the Thomas, Zeust, and De Dion were still in the lead. They took turns breaking the snow over the road, and as long as they were stuck together, they had each other to rely on. If begrudgingly. All three of them fell into the same ditch at a place appropriately named Dismal Hollow. As they waited for someone with horses to come pull them out, Scarfoglio of the Zeust accused Roberts of the Thomas of cheating saying he wanted the Italians to go first so they'd get stuck. Roberts lashed back, reminding everyone that his team had led them all through the Hudson Valley. They had spent more time shoveling snow, breaking trail, and watching their vehicles get pulled out of ditches by horses than actually driving. Tensions were high, everyone was frustrated, and they were all behind schedule. That was concerning, as every day they lost to snow and ditches, was another day they'd arrive late to Alaska, and another day for the sun to melt the ice on the Bering Strait, a critical part of their plan still thousands of miles away. They decided to switch who was in the lead every five hours, until they could finally break free of the snow and one another. When they neared Buffalo, American mechanic George Schuster was on edge, and not just because he'd spent hours shoveling and repairing the Thomas Flyer in freezing temperatures. He had a wife in Buffalo, and received word she was ill. He decided if she wasn't any better by the time his team reached the city, he would leave the race. His anxiety bled into the rest of the crew, and with Roberts at the wheel, the Thomas Flyer sped ahead of the others, and was the first to reach Buffalo. This was significant for the team for a couple reasons. One, Schuster would learn his wife was recovering and decide to continue the race. Two, Buffalo was the Flyers' hometown, and when they arrived, the city was ready. Too ready, unfortunately. Roberts was driving fast, a whopping 60 miles per hour, possibly the fastest they'd been able to go so far. Suddenly, they came upon a dozen cars on the road into Buffalo waiting to escort them, along with an entire band of bugles blasting celebratory songs. 
Roberts had to slam the brakes in order not to crash into them. The car spun off the road, broke a fence, barreled into a field, then turned sharply back onto the road. Luckily, the only damage was a flat tire and a small pang of embarrassment. It wasn't the grand entrance they were hoping to make, but it didn't damper the jubilation of the thousands of people lining the streets, cheering their arrival. The crowds were just as welcoming when the other cars rolled into town. It's hard to exaggerate just how excited people were to have their towns and cities be a part of this race. In the country, people would wait for hours in the freezing cold just to have a chance to see one of the cars drive by. If they were lucky enough to get close, they would scribble their names or initials onto whatever car they could get close to. This was a way for them to join the race and leave their mark, sending a small piece of their identities to vast corners of the world on an adventure to places most of them would never come close to getting to see for themselves. At least this way, the world would see their names. In Buffalo, the Thomas Flyer got a tune-up. Most of the cars would get tune-ups in the bigger cities along the way and would need it. No one had ever pushed automobiles this hard before, and the wear and tear on them was a constant issue. The Flyer also got itself another team member in Buffalo, a young mechanic named George Miller. He was quiet but reliable, and it didn't hurt to have a second mechanic aboard. While the other cars were in or zooming towards Buffalo, Goddard was two days behind in his motoblock. His fuel line had broken somewhere in the Hudson Valley, and the fix cost him valuable time. Not far ahead of him was the German Protos, which had already suffered four flat tires, probably due to the fact they weren't designed to hold up the gargantuan weight of supplies and machinery they were carrying. The Zeust was having its own bout of bad luck. Sertori had lost control on an icy hill, and the Italian car flipped over, landing in a snowdrift upside down. The crew managed to jump out before any of them were injured. After horses pulled them out, they managed to inch their way into Rochester for repairs. Sertori was and would continue to display a colossal measure of endurance. He often refused to sleep, didn't want to stop, and though he appreciated the banquets and fans along the route, he hated that it was costing his team time. When the Italians finally made it to Buffalo, Sertori hadn't slept in 24 hours. Not all the attention the cars received led to banquets and well wishes. In Rochester, when the German team was eating lunch, a crowd surrounded the Protos and stole everything that wasn't tied down. The disappointed German team was upset, but they still had what they needed to continue, so they shook it off and hit the road once again. Back in the French de Dion, the animosity that had spread outwards towards the other teams moved inward, as saint Chefre's team began turning on him. They were tired of him not pulling his weight when it came to shoveling snow or doing any of the manual labor. saint Chefre preferred to give orders from afar rather than struggle in the snow and mud with everyone else. His teammate Hansen told him he didn't care if he was the nephew of a marquis. They would leave him in Chicago if he didn't stop giving orders and start helping out. In contrast, the morale of the American Thomas Flyer was solid. Now in the lead, Roberts and Schuster were getting along swimmingly, both of them keen on going fast. 
Roberts, who knew he'd be leaving the team once they reached Colorado so he could head to the Grand Prix, was eager to put as much distance between the flyer and its competition. He feared if they lost the lead, the Thomas Company would lose heart, cut off its funding, and pull the flyer from the race. Roberts wanted to leave his crew with as much of an advantage as he could once he left them. In the German Protos, coldness was the most palpable feeling in the car, and not because of the weather. Moss and Nape didn't like their captain Copen much, and conversation was whittled down to a few words, and those were only spoken out of necessity. 22,000 miles is a long way to go in troubled company. The leaders were now making their way through Erie, Pennsylvania, then on to Toledo, Ohio, with Chicago set to be the next big city on the route, a route that wasn't getting any easier. Still, they were all happy to be free of upstate New York. The Zeust had to stop for repairs, since more damage was done when it had flipped over than was previously thought. And they weren't the only car having issues. saint Chefre and his De Dion stopped on the road to Toledo to light his headlights, which ran on kerosene. In 1908, if you wanted to see in the dark, you had to get out and light your headlamps with a match. Only, the De Dion had nothing to light, because their headlights had fallen off somewhere around Norwalk, Ohio. The way ahead for them would be dark. When the Americans, Italians, and De Dion French teams were plowing their way through Ohio, the German Protos was just getting into Erie, Pennsylvania, and the French Motoblock was now way behind. It still hadn't reached Buffalo, New York. The three leaders in Ohio were hoping the deep snow was now behind them as they neared Indiana. However, any hopes on the matter were dashed quickly. Indiana was in a state of emergency. A blizzard, one of the worst seen in years, stopped everything in northern Indiana for three days. Everything but the New York to Paris racers, who stubbornly kept to the road. It was slow work, unplowed roads had snow four to six feet high, and the cities weren't much better. According to Fenster, until now the teams had averaged around 30 miles per hour in Chicago, about 48 kilometers per hour. Once they reached Indiana, they had to slow their pace to one mile an hour or less. At one point, it took the Thomas Flyer 13 hours to go seven miles. When one car would shovel its way through, its crew would pile the snow back onto the road behind them, trying to make the way even more difficult for the trailing teams. By Indiana, any good sportsmanship the teams had had been left on the side of the road, frozen and irrelevant, like the De Dion's headlights. The New York to Paris race had started as a promising, adventurous celebration of human endurance and automotive ingenuity. It had become a brutal competition that would test the mettle of every machine and every person who was just now understanding how truly impossible this was going to be. And there was still 21,000 miles to go. You've probably already guessed this incredible piece of history is going to take more than one episode to tell. I don't think I've ever been right when I've guessed how many episodes these bigger stories will take, but I think, this time, probably three. 
This race is adventure and history and the beautiful and sometimes ugly condition of the human experience the whole way, and I want to tell it to you in a way that captures all of it. To do that, I've got to do multiple episodes. I've learned people prefer episodes around a half hour-ish rather than an hour and a half each, so I'll be back again with part two for you in three weeks. Before I go, I want to thank my newest patron, Surge. Surge, your awesomeness cannot be overstated. You are the kerosene that lights the way for this podcast. Thank you so much to everyone for listening to the show today. I truly hope you enjoyed hearing part one of the historic New York to Paris race, and I certainly hope you'll join me again for part two. If you like the show, please consider rating and following on iTunes or wherever you listen. This really does help make the show more visible out of the increasingly colossal number of podcasts floating around out there. Again, I'll be back in three weeks with more history for you. Until then, if you'd like to get a hold of me, you can email me at historycashpodcast at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter for now, but we'll see if that ship sinks. You can also find me on Instagram. If you'd like to help support the show, you can check out my Patreon page at patreon.com slash historycashpodcast. You can also make a one-time donation. You can access the link for that on the website under the support tab. That website is historycashpodcast.podbean.com. Background music and sound effects are licensed through Envato Elements, theme song from Audio Jungle. Stay safe, stay smart, stay curious. And until we meet again, my dear friends, go make some history.